This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Six people have resigned in protest from a panel that advises President Trump on HIV AIDS. One of those who resigned is Lucy Bradley Springer, retired associate professor of infectious diseases at CU Denver. She was named to the Presidential Council on HIV AIDS during the last two years of the Obama administration. And despite what she calls internal reservations, she signed on for a second term after the election of Donald Trump. Now comes this resignation. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. As it relates to the issue of HIV AIDS, what's behind your decision to step down? Well, a a lot of things went into that decision. I heard a lot of rhetoric during the campaign and after the um, inauguration. Uh, I saw some of the actions of the current administration and especially the people that were being assigned and and put into positions of power, especially on the cabinet. And I was looking at their thoughts about things that impact the HIV epidemic. So things like health care, which was the very biggest one, but also about women, women's health care, um, about uh, people who are not white, not middle class, not um, heterosexual, and actually not male. So there were a lot of us who felt like we were at risk for being discriminated against. And between that and worried about the loss of health care for people living with HIV, that those were the things that were pushing me toward um, thinking about resigning. I actually thought about not going on for a second term, and I thought, okay, maybe I can do a better job of making a difference from the inside, but it all really came to a head. I'll ask you about when it came to a head, but I'd like to put some finer points on your thoughts about the administration there. You you say that health care and the White House's view of it was first and foremost on your mind. Uh, how does that relate to those living with HIV AIDS? Well, I think the thing you have to remember about HIV infection is that it has become a disease of poverty. So people many people who have HIV infection are living on the edge and they can't afford or take the time to go get health care. And what happened with the ACA was... The Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Thank you. Um, What happened with the ACA was that um, a lot of people with HIV infection were, for the first time, able to get health insurance. And when they were able to get health insurance, we saw more of them coming into the health care system and getting the treatment they needed. Two things happen when people get with HIV get treatment. Number one, they improve their lives and their health, and with the drugs we have available now, they're able to live a normal lifespan. The other thing that happens is as they get treated, their viral load goes down, so that's the number of viruses running around in their body, and the fewer viruses running around in the body, in their body, the less chance they have of transmitting the infection to others. So there's a personal and a public health benefit. So when you call this a disease of those who are living in poverty, I, I think what I hear you saying is that those with means are able to get the kind of care that suppresses the virus, improves their health and public health. And those without means, or perhaps access maybe to expanded Medicaid or to subsidies on the exchange, they are less able to get that kind of treatment. What were you hearing from the administration 
then that led to that uh, make-or-break moment for you? Well, ever since the beginning of the campaign, we were hearing about um, completely getting rid of the ACA and um, putting in something new. Uh, We never heard what something new would be. Um, The ACA has a lot of areas where it needs to improve. There's a lot of things that need to improve, but it has set up a basic structure that people have been able to get into and we and with the ACA for the first time in our history we have seen 90% of the Americans uh currently being able to have health insurance. We've never seen that before. Though critics say that in some cases it's insurance in name only or expensive insurance when you consider copays, deductibles, etc. So how did it come about that the six of you resigned together? Well, what the President's Advisory Council for HIV AIDS, which I will call PACHA, uh, did after the inauguration is we wrote a letter to the Secretary of Health introducing the council and saying who we were, what we did, uh, the things that we had accomplished and the things that we would like to see happen, and asking how we can work together to make sure that as we move forward with some additional reforms to health care, that people with HIV would not be left behind. Um, it took a while, but we eventually got a letter back from a lower level person that basically said, thanks for the letter. We appreciate your input. Um, you know, saying a lot of nice things, but but not committing to working with us, not committing to taking into consideration the things we had outlined as necessary to continue moving toward eradicating the epidemic. And this is what broke the camel's back, if you will? That was, yes, it was. So so what happened was one of the members of the council, a lawyer named Scott Shottis, um, sent out an email to the whole council. And he said, you know, with what's going on, I don't think I can stay on the council. I wanted you all to know that, and I wanted to know how the rest of you were feeling. And that was, that pushed me over to thinking, rethinking about it. And, um, and clearly it did others as well. Yes. We're speaking with Lucy Bradley Springer. She is an associate professor emerita of infectious diseases at CU Denver and has uh, just recently resigned from a panel that advises President Trump on HIV AIDS. And at the time you left, there were, I believe, 18 members on the council. One who stayed was Dr. Ada Adamora, professor mm-hmm. of medicine at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He told Time Magazine, I choose to believe that through our various networks and whatever means we have, the council will somehow help reason and science to prevail. Are, are you disappointed more of these members didn't join the six of you? Oh, absolutely not. Um, I, and I'm not disappointed because I know how hard it was for me to make the decision. And I also listened to the struggles that the all six of us had. Um, Ada Adamora is an amazing physician, and she does some wonderful things. So I'm very glad that she's having a chance to also have her say. But the other members of the council are also wonderful people, and I do think that they have a chance. And I hope that they have a chance, but I felt like I needed to make a statement at this point, and this seemed to be the best way to do it. A statement. Mm-hmm. And, and what is it you're conveying? I'm conveying that I'm very concerned about the way things are going 
uh, with this administration. Um, I feel that there are problems with health care, but I'm very concerned about the stigma and discrimination that has been elevated to a very high level and sometimes with drastic consequences, as we have seen in the news. Um, and I felt like um, if I could stand up and say this is wrong, it's not appropriate, and it's not going to help people with HIV, much less anybody else in the country, that this was a chance for me to do that. But it does sound like the statement you're making is beyond the HIV-AIDS issue. Absolutely, yeah. because I think healthcare goes beyond HIV-AIDS. One of the stories on your resignation cited a lack of policy from the administration. But could it be a case that there just hasn't been time, I mean, six months in, to develop an approach here? Well, I do think there hasn't been time for this administration, but I will point out that in the the first hundred days of the Obama administration, he named a uh, a leader for the National AIDS Policy um, for the Office of National AIDS Policy that is at the White House. Within eighteen months, the person who was in that position helped us develop the National HIV/AIDS Strategy, which we had not had a national strategy before that. Um, and a lot of advances were made quickly. I want to say that the president named an infectious disease expert, Katie Talento, to his domestic policy council. That's a move that was praised by the nonprofit AIDS Institute, and the White House has said that domestic policy council staff have met with HIV/AIDS representatives several times. Uh, the state of Colorado and the city of Denver. Um, I, I'd like to say something about that. I, I have just recently heard about Katie Talento. Um, I have heard she has done some excellent work for HIV. That's that's wonderful. But the uh, Pacha had a meeting in Washington in March. And her name was never mentioned. She did not show up. Don't you think that the person who is responsible for this would be paying attention to the president's advisory council? Uh, The state of Colorado and the city of Denver have joined a global effort designed to end the AIDS epidemic by the year 2030, uh, presumably by getting more people care, uh, improving testing. Um, What kinds of things can you work on in your own backyard, uh, now outside of the council? Well, for one thing, I am the editor of the Journal of the Association of Nurses in AIDS Care. And I have been since 2007, and I have an editorial policy to write about these kinds of issues. And I have written a number of editorials about health care even back before it happened and as it was developing under the Obama administration. And I have that as a way to put forth ideas. I'm also a member of the Association of Nurses in AIDS Care, which has a very active advocacy and policy development group. So those are two things nationally and actually internationally that I I can work on. And I will continue to work in the Colorado and Denver communities as I find um, things that would be appropriate. But could you be more effective having stayed? You know, I don't know. Uh, because, like I said, I hope that they're effective. I hope that they can make some differences. Uh, I don't know if it would have made a difference if I had stayed or not. I'm hoping that 
it makes a difference that I'm leaving and we have a chance to have these discussions, which we wouldn't have had if we had not resigned. Just uh, this week as the Senate bill on health care changes emerges. We expect that tomorrow. Lucy, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan. Lucy Bradley Springer, retired associate professor in infectious diseases at CU Denver. Until last week, she was a member of the president's HIV AIDS Council. She and five others resigned in protest. The 2018 primary is a year away, but it's already shaping up to be one of the most hotly contested in Colorado memory. That is largely because of an open seat for governor, which is attracting big names, particularly on the Democratic side. CPR's government reporter Allison Sherry joins me. Hi, Allison. Hi, Ryan. So almost 25 people have filed paperwork to run for governor so far, and uh, more are likely waiting in the wings. Let's go over the front runners quickly. Who are the best known Democrats? So far, there are two congressmen, Ed Perlmutter and Jared Polis. They represent Jefferson County and Boulder, respectively. We have former state Senator Mike Johnston. There's a former state Sten- state treasurer, sorry, Kerry Kennedy, and a businessman named Noel Ginsburg. How far apart are these candidates in terms of ideology or policy, would you say? I mean, that's the thing about primaries, especially for a layperson. It's hard to distinguish between the candidates. On most big policy areas, these guys, and I'll include Carrie Kennedy, a woman in there, will agree. In fact, the real fight may be that they beat each other to the door on promoting new policy planks that they all actually support. This happened a few weekends ago, actually, when Johnston and Polis both unveiled renewable energy plans within hours of each other that were remarkably similar. They almost used the exact same language. So this is a sign that the race could get pretty feisty. And Remind us who's in the race on the Republican side. The one name that people may know here is George Brockler. He's the Arapahoe County District Attorney who prosecuted the Aurora Theater trial. We're waiting to hear from a few others, including Walker Stapleton, who's the state treasurer now. That's a statewide elected position, so he's already won statewide. I expect also a few more Republicans will jump in the race. Turning back to the Democrats, why have so many big names gotten in so early? Well, there are a couple of of theories here. Um, Nationally, Democrats are gathering a lot of energy, mostly having to do with opposing uh, President Trump. This isn't totally unusual. You may remember in 2010, two years after President Obama was elected, the Tea Party swept through Congress and won a bunch of seats with stances against the president at the time. Also, Ken Salazar may actually be a factor. He was the former Obama Interior Secretary and a Colorado senator, and everyone was kind of waiting to see whether he was going to run for governor. Mm. When he said he wasn't, it kind of opened the floodgates for a lot of ambitious people waiting on benches to actually run. I should also point out that I think it's pretty miserable to be a Democrat in the Republican-run House of Representatives. For they, it's been seven, it's been seven years the Republicans have run the House, and I think people like Polis and Perlmutter are just ready to do something new. Yeah, right. They're in Congress now, but with such a big field, I imagine that this is uh, likely to be a very expensive primary. It could be. I mean, one of the biggest factors that will drive up the price for the candidates is Colorado's new open primaries. This means unaffiliated voters get to vote for the first time. They'll get two ballots in the mail. They'll get to choose which primary they want to cast a vote in, the Republican ticket or the Democratic one. But this costs more money because candidates are going to have to try to reach those people in addition to their own base voters. And there are more than one million unaffiliated voters in Colorado. There's been a lot of talk over the past year about the split in the Democratic Party between, you know, the establishment, the kind who supported Hillary Clinton and the more um, lefty wing, the Bernie Sanders supporters. Does it, does it look like that divide will play a role in this primary? 
It might, though. None of the Democrats right now have openly supported Bernie Sanders last year. So some observers talked about Jared Polis pulling the party to the left in a detrimental way. But I think it's still too early to see who's going to really set the agenda. Polis and Perlmutter are both giving up their congressional seats to run. So I imagine there will be primaries in those races, too. Will those be a big deal? Oh, I expect so. Um, there are already three law, state lawmakers. They're all Democrats running for Perlmutter's seat. And one of Hickenlooper's cabinet members is running for Polis's seat. But it's still really early. I expect more people on both sides of the aisle to jump at the opportunity to serve in Congress. Thanks, Allison. Thank you. Allison Sherry is CPR's government reporter. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs> Listening to rap in college made Thea Wilson want to write poetry. The Denver artist and activist went on to a performance poetry team that won the National Poetry Slam a few years back. He founded it. His own poems are often filled with themes of race and social justice. Believe me, my people know a thing or two about doubters. There was a time when the Negro brain was thought scientifically capable of inventing memory and nothing more. Stating, quote, there is a physical difference between them that will forever forbid them from living together upon the footing of perfect equality. Abraham Lincoln. Now, as articulate as that may be, I believe the blacks who dreamed up the air conditioner, the almanac, elevator, traffic lights, super soaker, cell phone, peanut butter, the pyramids, and fire will disagree. Mr. President, we have a wireless call from your ego. He said, emancipate that. Wilson has now written a book. It's prose. The Law of Action is part autobiography about growing up in Denver's Park Hill neighborhood. It's part meditation as well on his personal philosophy. And Theo, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. You open your book with New Age philosophy, like the law of attraction. Uh, That was at the heart of the 2006 bestseller, The Secret. And essentially the idea is if you think positively, good things will happen to you. Uh, You quickly begin to poke holes in that. But I I guess like what drew you to these philosophies in the first place? Well, the fact that my father uh, is somebody who collected these books all the time. And so when I grew up, uh, these were in my house and it pushed my reading level to a much higher level than my grade would dictate. And so but you begin to question certain things they had to bear out in real life. And so I was on the search and I ended up in these bookstores and that's how I found it. What were some of the other titles? So the secret was in there. Like what else do you remember reading? Uh, I remember the architecture of all abundance written by the mother of the singer jewel who, uh, uh, I don't recall her name. I remember okay. some other things. Uh, let's see. Around that time. Like a lot of them have to I, do I, with prosperity, right? Yeah. And, and it, It's so like you, New Age prosperity gospel. Uh-huh. If you think positively, not only will you attract good things, but you'll maybe even attract wealth. Um, yeah. But you, you try to square the law of attraction with the slaughter of American Indians. Yeah asking what negative thinking must the Indians have been doing to attract their destruction. This is where it begins to fall apart for you. Well, yes, specifically in the actual video of The Secret, they go into where the Native Americans could not even see the ships of the Spanish because their shapes had no fitting match in their paradigm. And so I said, well, are they going to go into exactly what happened? Because that is very deeply interesting to me. I had spent time on the Lakota Reservation in Gregory, South Dakota, and I was deeply 
connected uh, with how they struggled and how this was completely unnecessary. And so I was hoping that they'd go into it and they let me down. They let you down. Yeah. So you write instead about the law of action. Yes, sir. Versus the law of attraction. Correct. What does the law of action mean to you? Well, the old text, the hermetic text, spoke of the law of attraction in conjunction with the law of action. And so one can't activate without the other. So the old axiom was act and ye shall attract. Well, action is difficult oftentimes. It's not as what we would call sexy. It's just the plain out law of attraction. And so it was separated and it was put into a context by which um, there was this magical secret that had not um, been uncovered by the common folk. And when they did that, they cheated the people who believed in it out of the true mechanism to make it work. Yeah, in response, you write, they seem to be lacking some elbow grease. For real. A real world and muscly way to deal with difficulty. Yeah. What, what do you mean by that? Say a uh, bit more. Uh, I mean, if it don't work in Bangladesh, if it don't work in Rwanda, if it don't work in Park Hill where I'm from, if it's not something that um, somebody can use anywhere on the planet to attract the same thing. For example, a shiny red bike they okay. use in the secret is completely dependent upon if there are shiny red bikes around. This in the secret is... Yeah. Uh, a symbol of, of a goal, something a that goal. you might attract into yeah. your life, a shiny red bike. Yes. Yeah, so if you're in the slums of Calcutta, where are they? If the law doesn't work there, it don't work anywhere. But the thing that works everywhere is action. And so I started to look into it in terms of that aspect to see what that means and what that action does to you spiritually. You spent much of your childhood in the Park Hill neighborhood of Denver. Correct. What do, you, what do you most remember about growing up there? I remember the friendships. I remember these very brilliant summers of us playing outside. And I also remember uh, the violence. I remember the overshadowing of the gangs and how that entered my life around. I was first aware of like six or seven years old. What made you aware of that at first? Well, what happened was there was somebody who was cleaning the hallways in my school, a young black guy. And I remember my teacher sitting us down and telling us that he had got shot. And I remember just this mind blowing thing happening to me. It's opening up my world that my parents had tried to keep me from that. I saw these guys around my neighborhood, but this really reinterpreted to me who they were. And then I began to see more talk about it in the news and how Denver was considered baby Los Angeles. And this this shadow was cast over my neighborhood. Did the. A school employee he he died no he he survived he survived he survived yeah but this was um the the shattering of innocence to some extent well yeah because then um i remember my my friends uh talking about what the big brothers were into and how like suddenly uh, around like the age of six or seven more of this talk started to infiltrate my life they were treetop homies they were ogs and i was like wow like this is something that i've got to keep my eyes open for and then these friends become the actual gang members and when they become the actual gang members you see them in a different light than the media sees them because it's something that you are connected with intimately and you begin to be concerned about the fate of these friends of yours that you just grew up with and that i remember being something that tore me apart in adolescence did you say that term tree treetop homie yeah i mean that's something that they used to say around the east side in park hill you know what i'm saying this is somebody who's what they call triple og status and that's that, that that's 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 um a lot of these terms are regional more than they are like universal so like the gangsters here may not use may use it but like somebody from la may not use that term i just remember what does the term it mean being thrown around it just means somebody who's got un 
unbridled check in the hood. Somebody who is some on on top of everything when it comes to any action that's taken. This is the guy who you got to go through. Oh. Yeah, so. the, they're at the top of the tree, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Um, did your parents have any frame of reference yeah. for gangs, and like, what were conversations you had with them? My father uh, used to be an active gang member in Brooklyn, um, and of course, he got out of that life when he got drafted. There's just that's what happens in war. Um, but my father had a context for it uh, that I think was advantageous for me. And a part of that advantageousness was the fact that he was so powerful. And even some of my friends who would come around, who I knew uh, were kind of into that life, were afraid of him. And thusly, since this was the man taking care of me, any appeal that that life had, my father put that in check right away. Mm. There was no way I was going to come home talking about I'm a part of this life and have to answer to this man. It's fascinating that, in a way, a war abroad is what yeah. ripped him from the war on the streets, if yeah, you will, correct, gang, gang warfare. Yeah. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is the slam poet and activist Theo Wilson. His new book is called The Law of Action, Master Key to the Universe We Actually Live In. Um I think it was your father who got you into arts yeah. as well. Yeah, correct. Well, what... He told me was that when I was born, he started looking for any innate gifts that I had. And so um, he started pushing me toward the things that I was naturally good at. I remember my father playing the piano when I was little. Uh, he, I remember when he bought and brought this huge thing into the house. And our next door neighbor, uh, you know, was a piano teacher. And so I started learning the keys because I heard him playing the keys. And so he was kind of my gateway into that. And yeah. what about your gateway into performance poetry? Yeah. Well, I have to say, you're... A really riveting performer. Thank you, bro. Yeah. And and that comes across just in audio if you hear, but if you see the performance in person especially. But um, what was your... Tell me more about the gateway to that. Well, firstly, um, I got to writing just because I needed to work through the stuff that was in my head. Uh, a lot of sadness that was going on just because I got to know too much too early. But then uh, that sadness uh, got kind of vented into rap. And I began to hang out with some folks who were battle rappers. And these guys were wicked clever with the punchlines. They were very destructive in what they were talking about, but at least they were putting thought into it. And so I started to kind of go that route. But it was inauthentic, you know what I mean? I, I wasn't doing the stuff that rappers suck, talk about that they're doing. So it, it didn't make any sense because eventually how things work is that uh, somebody who really does this will call you out, and it can be a very violent calling out. So rather than doing that, I started focusing this ability that I learned, the art of the punchline and the political and spiritual topics. And I took these raps to the Mercury Cafe, and when I took these raps to the Mercury Cafe, I would often go over time in my slams. But surely uh, I began to write slam poems. So this opened up this gateway. My voice kind of lent itself to being a speaker. And so I went from rapper to slam poet to speaker. I'll say that the Mercury Cafe, Mercury which is this cafe, cafe in, in downtown Denver, Lodo area, yeah. has a lot of, of open mic nights, performance poetry, things like that. Correct. So I think what I, what I hear you saying is that in the rap battles, yeah. you just didn't have an, a violent or like bloody enough background to have credibility in that? Yeah. I mean, this is what happens when your dad is in the home. You don't get into the stuff that would actually lead you to going down that route to actually prove that street credibility and these guys call you out on that. Mm. And so, I mean, not to say that I didn't get into some level of drama, because I did. It was unavoidable. But, but rather than trying to prove that, 
It seemed to be more apropos. I was concerned about other things anyway. And so naturally my muses led me to writing the things that would lead me to poetry anyway. It also led you, I think in 2004, uh, along with other young activists, to form CORE, the Colorado Organization for Racial Equality. Correct. And in the book, you write, our first project was not slaying some external dragon threatening the black community, but to address our problems within. Mm -hmm. Give me an example. Well, the crack era, the gang violence that I spoke of earlier broke down the trust in the black community. It's been said that the hood is just a neighborhood without the neighbors. And so there was this, at the time, the main focus was bringing back together a wounded community. And police violence has always been a part of that, but gang violence seemed to be more uh, pressing. And so we wanted to bring in community dialogues. And so we began to... uh, we began to have these at the shop talks. It, the, the, it was called Barbershop Talk at the time in Montbello Barbers. Right. This was the seed for Barbershop Talks. Correct. And these are community forums organized in neighborhood barbershops. That's right. Uh, the current iteration is called Shop Talk Live. That's correct. Which you direct. We've actually visited some of these. I remember you. With yeah. you. And, and uh, those are at CPRnews.org. Uh, I want to go back to that line. The hood is just a neighborhood without neighbors. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. It's this trust that got broken down. Yeah. And go ahead. Your neighborhood that you, you, know, you grew up in Park Hill, it's changing so fast <laughs> right now. Yeah. How, how does that feel? What, is it, what does it mean to you? Well, I feel like the neighborhood of Park Hill, number one, like prior to like black people living there, it was white people living there first and foremost. It's the shifting thing that comes on. There's white flight, then there's black moving in, then there's gentrification once once more. It's like this pe- yeah, pendulum. Yeah, this is it's, it's a strange pendulum. And so what I what what this is, gentrification is economic warfare to a certain extent. There are other ways to do urban renewal. You don't have to gentrify. There's ground up uh, examples that have been used. For example, in the Blackstone Rangers uh, in Chicago back in the 70s, they revitalized their neighborhood just from the ground up and it made it a more attractive place. But this gentrification situation in Denver has shot up these rent prices so high before there was a safety net in place. And that's the thing that I can get concerned about. Just briefly, we have about 30 seconds. You know, I think there are those who who may have moved into Park Hill who say, I'm not engaging in warfare. I'm living in a house. Yeah, it never feels like it. Look, it's just the fact that there is the ability for people to do things. And there's some people who don't have that ability. And it's never it's this this kind of push out. this kind of colonialism is never intentional these days. Well, almost never. There's some examples to the contrary. Thank you for being with us. No problem, my friend. It's Denver slam poet and activist Theo Wilson. His debut book is called The Law of Action, Master Key to the Universe We Actually Live In. Wilson also presents at TEDx Mile High next month. Hiking trails on Colorado's Front Range can get crowded, undermining the peace and quiet hikers crave. At Rocky Mountain National Park, for instance, visitor numbers are up 20% over about this time last year. Well, come west, says outdoor writer Bill Haggerty of Grand Junction, where many of the trails aren't so busy. He has put together the new guidebook, Hiking Colorado's Western Slope, and with summer officially here... Haggerty joined us in our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. In the opening of your book, you describe hiking as a skin-tingling, all-senses-alive adventure. How did you become hooked on hiking? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I, I've been hooked on hiking for years. My dad uh, was born and raised in Moraine Park in the middle of Rocky Mountain National Park. So huh. he started us off really early with, with hiking and enjoying outside. He was born there? And raised there? Uh, yeah, actually. He was actually he was born in Illinois on the way they were. Uh, Grandpa worked on the, on the road, Trail Ridge Road there. He was a civil engineer. Oh, my and, goodness. Uh, so Dad was actually born in the car on the way. But, yeah, he was, he was raised right there in Moraine Park and graduated from Estes High. That is fascinating. Okay, so this has been a part of you for a very long time. I don't know. D- describe a, a skin tingler. Or maybe the prettiest hike in this new guidebook. I'll describe one of the skin tinglers that I think is one of the prettiest hikes, and that is down into the Black Canyon of the Gunnison. Mm. Uh, Bobcat Trail was really one of my power spots growing up and into my late 30s. <laughs> and I went down that trail a couple of years ago. The last 125 feet or so is pretty much hand-over-foot rock scrambling. And... Uh, when I was young, that was easy. <laughs> but a couple of years ago, it was certainly skin tingling going down. Hikes might change over time, or at least the people hiking them do. And describe right. what you see when you go down into the Black Canyon. One of the most magnificent scenes you'll find in the lower 48, I believe. I mean, it's 2,200 feet deep at its darkest, which is one of the reasons it's called black, because the sun just never reaches the bottom. The other reason is that that hard granite along there is just rubbed black through time and weathering. Mm. Um, and it's just a magnificent river in the bottom of that. It It is just one of the most special places I've ever found. Okay, so the Bobcat Trail, huh? Yep, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. Okay. If you don't want to do that one, try Ute. <laughs> it's also in the book, but it's a lot easier. This book really covers the entire western slope. I mean, you hiked almost 60 trails, I think, to put it together. And uh, I wonder how many miles of Colorado's backcountry you'd say you have hiked. Uh, That's a good question. I was going to figure those numbers out. I was just going to add them all up. But, you know, (laughs) my calculator wasn't working. I think I've gone through uh, two and a half or three pair of boots hiking just these trails in the book. And you have had some real adventures putting it together, including a backcountry medical emergency. What, what, what happened? Uh, yeah, that was a little sketchy. Labor Day, I went into the Powderhorn Wilderness, which is located between Gunnison and Lake City to the east. Yeah, Powderhorn Lakes is just a spectacular area. It's right beneath Calf Plateau and Cannibal Plateau, which is where old Alfie Packard had his lunch. Yes, but... the, can- the infamous Cannibal. That's right. But I got uh, I got into the lakes. I backpacked in and then got really violently ill that night and couldn't figure out what it was. So when I crawled out of there, uh, I went to the doctor and I had a triple hernia, an incarcerated hernia. Incarcerated? Oh, my goodness. It's like serious enough for prison. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I felt like I was in prison, I'll tell you, driving home. <laughs> uh, well... Besides that, tell us more about that part of the world. I've been to Lake City. It's one of the most remote spots in the lower 48 because it's just surrounded by public lands. It is, and that's one of the nicest things actually about the entire western slope. I mean, most of it is open public property. Um, Some of those areas around Lake City are drop-dead gorgeous because you've got all those 14,000-foot peaks down there. 
Um, but the Powderhorn Wilderness is a little unique. It's uh, a flat, high alpine, almost desert-like situation in certain areas where you've got huge, huge, wide-open swaths of of high mountain parks. You can see all the way down to the Lagaritas and down into New Mexico. You can see up north over to the Uncompahgre Peak and, and Mount Sneffels. It's just one of the most magnificent areas in the state. And like you say, it's surrounded by public land and there's not many people there. Mm. I went into that Powderhorn Lakes. They say that's one of the most crowded areas in that whole forest down there. I saw six people over Labor Day week. <laughs> that was it. It's all relative on the west it slope is. versus the east slope, I think. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Grand Junction outdoor writer Bill Haggerty. He has put together a new guidebook called Hiking Colorado's Western Slope. And I understand your, your wife doesn't let you hike alone anymore after that hernia incident. Uh, no, no. And I think that's good advice for most people. Yes, that's <laughs> Take right. my wife's advice. Hike with a friend. Makes yes. sense. You know, guidebooks can be dry, but in your book, aspen forests sparkle, uh, wildflowers glow, brooks are hypnotic. Mud isn't just sticky, it's shoe-sucking. <laughs> well, it's true. Welcome to Colorado. I really do believe that. We live in such a spectacular part of our country um, that it truly is awe-inspiring when you get outside and you can really see those, you know, those quaking aspen and those colorful flowers and crested butte and and enjoy the canyons and rivers. You know, that's why we live here. And most people, I don't believe, take advantage of it. Uh, you know, we're we're in God's country here and everybody's sitting in their car on Colorado Boulevard, right? Boy, I, I know what that feels like and how desperately I often want to escape it. You include many historical tidbits in this book. Tell us about the school kids who saved Buffalo Nichols to enhance a trail in the Colorado National Monument. There was this crazy old coot back at the turn of the last century named John Otto who really pushed for the designation of a national park here. Uh, that he wanted to call Colorado Canyons National Park. He did eventually uh, push through a national monument or helped push through a national monument designation. But he always thought that one of the coolest things to get people to come here and visit would be to have a bunch of buffalo there. And there was actually an old photo that I dug up out of the archives um, that showed a Navajo skinning a buffalo in this area back in the mid-1800s maybe. But that's the only evidence there was ever of a buffalo, and it probably didn't come from here. Huh. But nonetheless, John got all the local school kids to save their buffalo head nickels, and, and a couple of the local groups helped support him, and they started a herd of buffalo that was here until uh, the mid-'80s, I believe, or late-'90s. I can't, I, I've got it in the book. You'll have to read the book. You'll have to read the book, <laughs> said, the, yeah. said the author. You know, but but yeah, he had a, a herd of buffalo right here in the desert that lasted for quite a while. They kept it small, about 20, 25 head most of the time. But uh, it was quite a shock to come down some of those trails out of the National Monument and see a buffalo staring at you. Hmm. Otto himself actually built most of the trails by hand, all by himself. Give us an example of one. I think the most unique one is... Uh, off of Liberty Cap Trail, which actually comes out of uh, the Redlands area in Grand Junction and goes up toward the top. 
to a, an area called Liberty Cap. Off to the side of that is another trail called Corkscrew. And it's literally built in the side of this granite wall that goes up about 250 feet. And it just scales it. <laughs> and he just blasted it out with dynamite and pickaxes all by himself. It's, it's really a neat trail to hike. Again, in the Colorado National Monument. We'll put the, the names of the trails we're getting at our website, cprnews.org. Many of the trails you write about have really colorful names. So Lost Man, Skinny Fish, Cutthroat Castle, and I love this one, Oh Be Joyful. Uh, are, are, <laughs> are those as interesting as they sound? They are, every one of them, really. Oh Be Joyful is a wonderland in the summer. It's right there in Crested Butte, which is the wildflower capital of Colorado. Yes. And the world, if you ask me. It's not far outside of Crested Butte, maybe 10, 15 miles and uh, it's just loaded with wildflowers in the summer. But the reason it's called Old Be Joyful, there's a couple of big mountains that surround it where there were some really large silver mines um, back in the late 1800s. And those miners were oh so joyful to race down that valley to get to the brothels in Crested Butte <laughs> when they got time <laughs> off. That's where the name came from. Oh, Be Joyful. That's funny. I thought it was so innocent. Nope. Uh-huh. <laughs> now, you you do name your top five hikes in this book. And number one is um, quite a serious story. It's the Storm King 14 Memorial Trail. Tell us about it and why it's at the top of your list. You know, when we talked about skin tingling right off the top, that's the most skin tingling hike I think I've ever done. To see... What those firefighters had to go through to get up to the top of that mountain is absolutely incredible when they're carrying 100-pound packs and chainsaws and all sorts of equipment. And to see that type of terrain and to see the destruction that that fire caused, it gives everyone pause. It really is an impactful trail. And I just, it's not the most beautiful trail, definitely. It's, it's not the hardest but it's certainly not the easiest. It's just the the most impactful for an outdoor hiker, for an outdoor rider. I've just never felt that on any other trail in my life. This is the fire in 1994 uh, in Glenwood Springs that killed 14 firefighters. Yep. Do you have some fear that by uh, alerting the public to these hikes, they'll get too crowded. Yes, that's been a problem about writing for the outdoors since 1976 when I first penned my first column about uh, the Black Canyon. And I've really wrestled with it for years. But my main issue remains that if you don't write about it, if you don't get people out there, if they don't understand what they have, it will be ignored and then taken advantage of. And somebody else will take it, and it'll be gone from us. When I first wrote about the Black Canyon, they were uh, thinking about putting another dam down below the canyon and inundating one of the most spectacular places on Earth. And I just couldn't stand by and watch that happen. So even though that was my favorite fishing spot, I had to give it up. Now, did I drag millions of hikers into the woods because of that. You know, I went to that Black Canyon last year. Actually, I was in there a couple of weeks ago. There's nobody down there. 
I was still the only guy on that trail. So I don't think I've really overrun it. But I will say that there are places that can get loved to death. For example, two of the top five hikes in the book were Ice Lakes and Blue Lakes. Ice Lakes is near Silverton. Blue Lakes is at the base of Mount Sneffels in the San Juans. They're packed, especially on the trailheads, especially on the weekends. So don't go there. Go during the week. The other thing that I can say is that they're packed for the first half mile to mile. If you get beyond a mile on any of the trails in this book, you've got a wilderness experience because people don't hike more than a mile. Well, one last question, which is that you have an unusual category in this rundown of trails. Uh, Canine compatibility. You bet. Yeah, that's something hikers need to know because not all trails, certainly... No trails allow dogs off-leash, right? Actually, there are a number of trails here in the West that still allow dogs off-leash. The law says, or BLM's rules and regulations state, that they still need to be under voice command. However, uh, you know, (laughs) there, there are some really good hunting dogs out there that may be under voice command, but most of our pets aren't. So, you know, I tried to put in there that... Um, there are places that are appropriate for pets, and there are certainly places here in western Colorado that are not appropriate for pets. Um, uh, no dogs are allowed on trails in national monuments and national parks. So the people who don't like pets can certainly go there, and they have plenty of places to hike. Um, there are also places, for example, Dominguez Canyon. In the springtime, bighorn sheep, desert bighorn sheep lamb right at the mouth of that canyon. If you've got a running dog, you ought to be shot. Don't allow your dog to chase our wildlife. Hmm. You know, so owners of pets need to pay attention to that kind of stuff. There's also a lot of desert hiking that here in western Colorado. That's simply not appropriate for pets in the middle of the summer at 100 degrees. You know, here again, the owner needs to be put in the kennel and the dog needs to be given a good home. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about <laughs> hikes that are good for uh, our our furry friends. Actually, a lot of the hikes in the wilderness are really good for, for our furry friends, although I'd keep them on, on lead. A couple of buddies of mine and I hiked down in the Piedra River area down near Pagosa Springs on Four Mile Creek and uh, a couple of those trails down there. They're great for dogs. They're really nice. But again, there's a lot of wildlife, so you have to be a responsible pet owner. What is the topography like down there? You know, it's really cool. It comes up out of almost straight up out of New Mexico into the Rockies and gains an elevation pretty rapidly out of uh, Pagosa Springs. It gets up into the Wimanooch Wilderness Area. And a lot of the Wimanooch is uh, really over 10,000 feet. But uh, these trails are probably up into the 9,000, 9,500 foot area. And that's near Pagosa Springs. Yes. Yeah. Durango, Pagosa down in that area, southern Colorado. Hey, thanks for sharing these hikes with us. Hey, you bet. This has been a gas. Bill Haggerty wrote the new Falcon Guidebook, Hiking Colorado's Western Slope. There's a list of the trails we talked about, as I said, at cprnews.org. You can subscribe to the Colorado Matters podcast through your favorite podcast service, including iTunes, and we are also on NPR One. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Oh!